Hey y'all, before we get started, I just need to make a quick correction. In the last episode, I said I was badly paraphrasing Isaac Asimov when I was actually badly paraphrasing Arthur C. Clarke. I take full responsibility for this egregious and inexcusable error, and I apologize to my father, avid science fiction fan and my personal hero, for bringing such shame to the family name. Love you, Dad. Now that I got that off my chest, enjoy the show. In 1887, a new county was carved out along the Oklahoma line, at the southeast corner of the Panhandle, where the Red River dries out and the border takes a sharp turn north. They named it in honor of George Campbell Childress, best known for writing the Texas Declaration of Independence and, after failing to get his law practice off the ground, for disemboweling himself with a bowie knife. An election was held that April to decide which town would get the honor of becoming the county seat. It was a contentious race between two towns that were only four miles apart, Henry and the county's namesake town of Childress. The latter got the most votes, but a slew of special interest and railroad lobbyists contested the results, and the election was ultimately nullified. A redo was held six months later, and this time Henry was the winner, and once again, the results were contested. It was a mess, but representatives from both towns finally put an end to the feud by meeting somewhere in the middle, literally. Henry would get the title of county seat, but in return it would officially change its name to Childress. The original town of Childress was effectively dissolved, and its residents just packed up and moved four miles down the road to the town formerly known as Henry. The newly consolidated Childress was still a small town though, only a little over eight square miles, and for 50 years now it's been home to roughly the same number of people, around 6,000. It's also an extremely conservative place, the ninth most conservative in the country, in fact, according to a 2015 study. And back in the 1980s, as the town's most famous native son, Lou Dobbs, was starting to hit it big on cable news, conservative small towns like Childress became a prime target for occult forces to infiltrate, operate, and recruit for their dark agenda. At least according to certain gym teachers we know. Quote, Small towns are particularly susceptible to cults, which look for remote areas where their activities can be more easily concealed. In reality, it made Childress more popular with drug traffickers than it did devil worshippers. But the town's relative isolation and red-blooded conservatism weren't the only appeal it held for insidious cultists in search of a new slice of American pie to defile. When the satanic panic swept the country, Childress had only one real pop culture claim to fame. A brief shout-out in the seminal 1974 horror film, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It's just one line, when the final girl runs into the old man and asks to use the telephone. There's no phone here. We'll have to drive over to Childress. And then they both have a nice family dinner with Grandpa. The filmmakers marketed the movie as based on a true story, even though it was only loosely inspired by the crimes of serial killer Ed Gein up in Wisconsin and Childress is geographically closer to Wichita, Kansas than to the film's actual shooting locations of Round Rock and Leander. Texas is big, y'all. Still, the movie had a lasting impact on the town, and a fair amount of people really believed there was some chainsaw cannibal family still at large and selling human barbecue at a gas station somewhere nearby. Kids and Childress liked to spook each other at sleepovers with campfire tales of bloodthirsty killers who walked unseen among them, hiding in plain sight. They could be anyone, and you could be next. 17-year-old Tate Rowland liked to throw on a mask and some overalls and chase the cute girls from school around the cemetery with a chainsaw, without the chain on it, of course. 
The girls seemed to get a kick out of it, or at least they got a kick out of him. Childress is the kind of town where everyone knows everyone, whether they like it or not. And in 1988, everybody knew Tate Rowland, especially the local police and county sheriff's office, thanks to his proclivity for getting drunk, starting fights, and racing his blue pickup truck all over town. He was your typical small-town rebel without a cause, attractive, popular, and always getting into trouble. Most folks seemed to think he could use a good whooping, but still, he was just a kid. At least, that's how Sheriff Claude Lane saw it. Kid or not, Tate was deeply protective of his girlfriend, Karen Hackler, and had a serious issue with managing his jealousy and his temper. He was quick to fight any guy who so much as looked at her. He even cold-cocked his friend in the face and broke his jaw just for giving her a ride somewhere once. Karen was a diminutive girl and daughter of a prominent farming family in town, and they were rightly concerned about her and Tate's volatile and very public relationship. Everyone in town, at one time or another, had witnessed a screaming match in their truck, or one dramatically running after the other down the street, then making up with a little too much gusto for what most folks considered appropriate behavior in a Dairy Queen parking lot. But according to Karen's family, these weren't just run-of-the-mill spats between teenage lovers. The hacklers routinely complained to the cops and to anyone who'd listened that Tate's behavior was nothing less than criminal harassment. They accused him of stealing her wallet and jewelry and using his truck to tear up their front yard after one of the couple's near-daily fights. They said Karen wanted to break up with Tate for a long time but was too afraid of what he might do if she actually went through with it. When Karen's brother Kevin warned Tate to stay the hell away from his sister, the two boys got into a fistfight so bad it ended with both of them bruised and bloodied in the back seat of a Crown Vic. Both boys accused the other of having started it. Kevin told the cops that Tate tried to run him down with his truck. Tate told him Kevin was bashing the truck with an axe handle and he was just trying to get away. As far as the grand jury was concerned, without any witnesses, it was just a bunch of teenage he said, he said. So they called it a draw and turned them both loose without charges. And that wasn't the first time Tate had been dragged down to the station in cuffs. Back in January, he'd been arrested and charged with assault at the local Allsup's gas station, where Karen worked as a cashier. Tate jumped over the counter and tried to choke her with both hands around her throat. But during a lunch break at the trial, the jury caught sight of the couple hugging each other in the hallway, and based on that alone, they dismissed the case. Turning a blind eye to disturbing patterns of domestic violence wasn't uncommon back then, or today, nor was it relegated to conservative rural areas. Truth is, it never was. Many, if not most, people at the time considered domestic violence situations to be a private, personal problem, especially when it involved teenagers. To a lot of folks in Childress, it was more or less on par with underage drinking. As long as you kept it in the house and didn't make a spectacle of yourself, and nobody got too badly hurt, there was no sense getting the law involved. After all, boys will be boys and bygones will be bygones. Ain't no sense ruining a kid's life over it. Well, at least not the boy's life. And that mindset wasn't any different from that of small towns all across the country. Everybody knows everybody, everybody likes drama and gossip, but nobody wants trouble. And certainly nobody wants to air their neighbor's dirty laundry for the law when they got a heap of their own stashed just out of sight. Besides, Sheriff Lane reckoned he already had enough on his plate, and the less paperwork and fewer pissed off parents he had to deal with, the better. Especially when those parents were literally his neighbors and you couldn't take a piss in an alley without running into the whole damn town. Besides, if he processed and prosecuted every teenage infraction, the county jail might as well have been the high school. 
After all, there just ain't all that much to do in Childress in 1988. Teenagers looking to have some summer fun were pretty much limited to three options. Driving up and down the main drag, hanging out in the parking lot of the 24-hour car wash, or chugging a sixer of Coors in somebody's driveway. Tate's father, Jimmy Rowland, had been warning his son from the get-go to stay away from that hackler girl. Pretty little blonde girls weren't nothing but trouble, and that whole family ain't no damn good. The feeling was mutual. The hacklers accused Jimmy of coming over to their house to harass and threaten them himself, which he denied, of course. And the roiling family feud between the Rollins and the hacklers was the hot gossip around town. Childress was a town founded on feud, but unlike the rivalry between Henry and Childress, the two families didn't look like they'd be coming together to bury the hatchet anytime soon. It got so bad that Jimmy Rowland decided it was best for Tate to leave town for a while and stay with Ken in Louisiana, at least till things had cooled off some. When Tate got back just in time for summer, he planned to drive straight over to the Hackler place to sweep Karen off her feet. But small town gossip spreads like lice on lightning, and it caught him in the ear before he could even rev up the engine. In the two short months he'd been gone, Karen had already gotten hitched to some older guy, and Tate, it seemed, was the last person in town to find out. For someone as unstable and possessive as Tate, he seemed to be handling the heartbreak pretty well. According to his friends, he'd get a little teary-eyed after a few beers, but even then it was just your standard, it's fine, I'll just die alone, teenage pity party. He told one of his friends he wanted the popular country song, He Stopped Loving Her Today, to play at his funeral. That kind of shit. All things considered, his friends thought he was bouncing back just fine. July 26th, 1988. School was out for summer, and that meant hanging around the parking lot of the grocery store with the tailgate down, hoping someone showed up with something, anything better to do. Tate and his friends Bobby and Chad were chatting up a group of girls from school, trying awkwardly to flirt, and promising to swing by their softball game at the park later that night. After the girls left, Bobby said he had to stop home for a bit, but he'd catch up with them later for beers. Chad and Tate had some time to kill. It was only 5 o'clock. So they jumped in Chad's car and drove out to one of their favorite spots to do a little pre-gaming. The two hadn't known each other for long. Chad Johnston was only 15 and kinda shy, and his family had only recently moved to town. Making friends with a popular, older kid like Tate was a godsend for him, and Chad followed Tate around wherever he wanted to go. And that summer afternoon, the destination was an old, drooping horse apple tree out in the farmlands just north of town. It was one of their favorite haunts, nobody around to hassle him for drinking or complain about them blasting tunes on the radio. Tate cranked up the dial and tossed Chad a beer. It was shaping up to be a damn good night. At 6 p.m., exactly one hour after the boys had peeled out of the grocery store parking lot, Tate's parents, Jimmy and Brenda, got a knock on their door. It was Chad, alone. Mr. Rowland? Mrs. Rowland? He said. Tate's dead. The three of them rushed to the car and floored it a few miles north of town, down a desolate dirt road between two cotton fields, to an old horse apple tree, drooping under the weight of Tate Rowland's lifeless body, strung up by a noose, swaying and spinning in the evening breeze. Jimmy choked back his tears, opened his knife, and cut his son down from the tree. And all the while, Brenda would later tell the court, Chad just stood there. Calm as he could be. No tear in his eye, no nothing. Sheriff Lane took Chad down to the station to find out just how in the hell did something like this happen. Chad told the sheriff they was just hanging out at that old tree, listening to music, and 
you know, yeah, they might have had a couple of beers, but they weren't hurting nobody. So they knock back a few, and Tate goes and gets the rope out of the car. And Chad's car. Yeah, but why is there rope in the car? It's just it's, it's just some rope. It was just in there, probably been there for months. Then what? So Tate takes a rope and he chucks it up over the big old branch on the tree and he says, I'm going to hang myself. And Chad laughs because it's like a joke. He's just fooling, like fucking around, you know. So Chad goes back behind some bushes to toss out an empty and then goes up on the road to check and make sure there ain't nobody coming. And when he gets back, how long before he gets back? Two, about maybe three minutes, maybe. That's a long time. Road's what, 10, 15 yards away? Uh, ain't like he got a watch or nothing. Just felt like a minute, two, maybe three, give or take. Then what happened? And he goes back down to the tree, and there he was. Just Tate, just hanging there. Spinning around like a... Uh, like a... He was dead. Just spinning there. Alright then. Get on out of here. And go straight home. Don't even think about leaving town. Yes, sir. For now, Sheriff Lane felt like he had to take Chad at his word. He didn't have much else to go on. And that hackler girl had just broken that rolling boy's heart, something awful. Everybody in town knew that. The coroner felt the same way. It was cut and dry. Except for the rope burns, of course. It was a little strange for there to be two of them. One above the Adam's apple where the noose had held him, and a second one just below the Adam's apple that didn't make a whole lot of sense. But then again, that hackler girl did just break his heart, something awful. Sheriff Lane called Chad back down to the station and showed him the photo of the marks on Tate's neck, and suddenly his story changed. Now Chad claimed that when he got back to the tree, he didn't find Tate dead and hanging. Instead, he saw bits of broken rope hanging from the big branch up there, and Tate was lying there on the ground trying to get the the broken noose off his neck. So Chad runs over to him, and Tate looks up all sad-like, and he says, I can't even kill myself. But he dusts himself off and the two of them get in the car and drive over to Tate's house about five minutes or so away, it's a short drive, and get a new rope out of Mr. Rowland's shed out back. Then they drive back to the tree and- Did he say why he wanted to get another rope? No, sir. If he'd tried to hang himself once, why help him get another rope? Because Tate wanted to. He, he just wanted to. Then what happened? So then Tate ties himself another noose and, and he chucks the rope up over the same the same big branch and then he gets up on the hood of the car and puts the noose around his neck and just kind of just kind of steps off. Why didn't Chad mention any of this before? Why'd the story change? He was scared. What? Be honest now and think hard about the next words that tumble out that mouth. You don't want to get in trouble, not any more trouble anyhow. Look, Tate was all messed up about Karen, you know, had been ever since he got back from Louisiana. Everybody in town knows that. He said some stuff about killing himself a couple times maybe, but it was just talks. Seemed like it. Like he was just exaggerating, you know? Okay, but once he got the noose around his neck, why not stop him? Don't know, to be honest. Just, uh, don't know. A farmer in the area told police he'd seen two boys out there by the old horse apple tree that day, about 5.30 or so. Didn't see what they were up to and didn't really pay him any mind. Boys will be boys, but he did notice them drive off and come back again about 10 minutes later, which lined up with Chad's second version of the events. The unexplained rope burn still didn't sit right with the sheriff, but it seemed plausible that it came from the first failed attempt at hanging. 
Sure, they never found any broken rope at the scene, but there wasn't any real evidence of foul play either. At least not enough to justify all that paperwork. Things like this are hard enough on a family, on a town, and it'd spare folks a lot of pain and trouble if you just kept it simple. Folks like simple. They like cut and dry, black and white. No sense ruining a kid's life over it. Well, at least not the one that's still breathing. Just one day later, the coroner signed off on his report, and the death was ruled a suicide. Tate's funeral was held at the Calvary Baptist Church the following day, and it was there that the people of Childress first started noticing that something about this tragic death wasn't quite right. It was just a feeling, a hunch you might say. There was this dark, unsettling chill in the air, and everybody in town could feel it. It was electric, like a storm just about to roll in. First, there was the woman, dressed all in black from head to toe, a veil obscuring her face, seated in a pew at the back of the chapel. Everybody in town saw her, or remember seeing her, think they saw her, say they did, but nobody knew who she was, and she was gone before anyone could ask. And then there was the young man in the front row, rocking back and forth in the pew as the preacher gave his sermon, head down, hands clasped, and muttering to himself. Those close enough to hear say it was just a single word repeated over and over again, almost like a chant. Suicide, 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 suicide. Once Tate Rowland was returned to the earth, the old horse apple tree between two cotton fields at the end of a dirt road had a new name, the hanging tree. And according to then district attorney of Childress County, David McCoy, everybody in town made a point to avoid driving past it if they could. Not that they'll tell you the place is haunted, he said, but there's just, well, there's something about it. Everybody in town said so. A few days after the funeral, the Childress PD got a phone call from a high school student. He said he found something they might want to see. About a quarter mile from the hanging tree, officers found a cow skull lodged in the trunk of a long dead tree, its empty sockets glaring down at a circle of logs surrounding a carefully stacked pile of rocks. It was deliberate and man-made, no doubt about that, but the cops on the scene all agreed it looked like, felt like, more than that. It was unsettling, sinister even. They'd all read the brochures and the checklists issued by the state, and they'd attended a seminar or two. They knew exactly what they were looking at. This was an altar, and it sure as hell weren't for worshiping God. A few nights later, an officer on patrol spotted someone in the cemetery as he drove past. He couldn't get a good look at him, just a shadowy figure in the dark, but something about it gave him the creeps. It looked like whoever it was was just standing there, hovering over a grave. On his way back to the station, the officer decided he ought to stop by the cemetery just to check things out. In the very place where the figure had been standing, he found a fresh grave marked with a brand new tombstone. My special son, the epitaph read, Jansen Tate Rowland, Love Dad and it was dripping with fresh, thick globs of spit. And that was far from the last unusual occurrence in Childress to be reported in the wake of Tate's death. There was also the school teacher's dog stolen right off the lawn, or at least it was missing. But it wasn't the type to run away, so, you know, explain that. While driving past the cemetery, someone claimed to have spotted a burning wooden cross planted in the dirt of Tate's grave, belching black smoke into the sky. When the cops came to investigate, the cross, and any evidence that had ever been there, was gone. By the time school started in the fall, every kid in town knew the dark truth that the grown-ups were too scared or too oblivious to admit. 
Tate Rowland had been a member of a secret satanic cult that had come to take over Childress. But first they had to find a blonde-haired, blue-eyed child to sacrifice to the devil in a dark ritual of blood magic. And all four daughters of Tate's sister, Terry Trosper, were perfect candidates. The cult had commanded Tate to kidnap one of his own nieces, but he refused. It's so obvious he didn't kill himself. The cult murdered him for disobeying orders and it made it look like suicide to cover it up. I'm telling you man, it's true, I swear to God. My friend told me his friend in Lubbock has rock solid proof of it on videotape. My cousin used to swim in his pool every Sunday, and my mama saw a whole thing about it on Sally Jesse just the other day. She says the Satan worshippers are doing a worldwide conspiracy and this just proves it. Dad says the media don't want us to know that real stuff though, cause uh, like, you know, that they, that's why they got taxes and stuff. And just between you and me, Sheriff Lane, yeah, he's in on it. Dad says he's one of them kitty touchers. And the rumor mill grinds on, a perpetual energy machine fueled by fear and fantasy, and spitting out only more of the same for it to gorge itself upon. The more it feeds, the faster it churns. The faster it churns, the more it feeds. If you say it enough times, if you get enough people to repeat it, to believe it, is it still a lie? Repetition makes things sound true until they are true and the mill grinds on. But this wasn't just teenage gossip. Everybody in town knew there were at least a dozen cultists at the hanging tree that night to watch Tate Rowland die. Even the town newspaper, the Childress Index, had it on very good authority that there were upwards of 20 cultists operating in the area, and Lord only knew how many more were lurking in the shadows, hiding in plain sight, walking among us unseen. They could be anyone, and you could be next. A woman told police that a few days prior to Tate's death, she'd seen a group of very suspicious-looking teenagers at the park. They were dressed all in black and blurring black heavy metal music from their car stereo, including at least one song that mentioned Satan by name. The teens were pushing their feet around in the gravel, she said, so once they'd driven a safe distance away, she went to see what it was they'd done. A shiver went plumb up and down my spine and back up again, she said. The teens had shaped the gravel into a perfect circle and scrawled three numerals around it. Six, six, and six. To make this even thicker, District Attorney McCoy said, About the same time as these rumors started, we had strangers in cars showing up at the grade school parking lot trying to pick up little kids. That's a daggum fact. But it isn't. Not exactly. We can't confirm it or disprove it, but... What we can say is that no kids were reported kidnapped, no arrests were ever made, and there was no real evidence, at least that we could find, that it ever happened at all. But that was irrelevant, really. The rumor mill's ceaseless grind now had the whole town on edge. And like we'll learn the hard way in part three, once kids are involved, shit really goes off the rails. Childress, Texas was now fully in the grip of the satanic panic. And just like in so many other towns across America, fantasy became indistinguishable from fact, skeptics became suspects, and paranoia ate plausibility whole. Majority opinion had shifted, and when that happens, reality itself shifts along with it. The sheriff's office phone lines were flooded with reports of cult activity and neighbors accusing neighbors, people they'd known their whole lives and ran into every single day of being clandestine cultists out for blood. No one could be trusted. Not anymore. Most folks in town knew, at least subconsciously, that the best way to avoid suspicion was to cast it on someone else first. Just ask anyone in 1692 Salem Village's barn-turned-jail 
it's better to fake affliction than risk accusation. Brenda Rowland said she was getting as many as 10 phone calls a day from folks asking questions, recounting suspicious activities they'd seen around town, and of course, naming names. Brenda liked to tell people she wasn't buying into this crazy stuff. But at some point, that kind of half-assed performative skepticism starts to sound like a defense mechanism. Like when conspiracy theorists get confronted and insist they're just asking questions. No matter how much or how little Brenda Rowland actually bought into the rumors, it was definitely more than none. And that alone can be more than enough. She started keeping a list of every name she heard mentioned among the whispers. And before long, she was calling up neighborhood kids at home and, quote, asking them point blank if they were cult members. As Texas Monthly writer Skip Hollinsworth put it, quote, The people of Childress saw rational thinking overcome by fright and apprehension, and yes, by the pure pleasure that comes from swapping third-hand information over a cup of coffee. Speaking of Skip Hollinsworth, it's time for a quick and overdue side note. This story was barely reported on anywhere, and about 75% of everything in this episode is based on his 1992 article for Texas Monthly, Possessed by the Devil. Believe me, we tried hard to find more sources. We even reached out directly to the paper formerly known as the Childress Index for archived microfiche, but they said they didn't digitize anything published prior to 2014. We obsessively spent weeks trying to fill in every gap we could and tracking down every source there was to find. But still, the bulk of this story comes straight from Skip's unparalleled journalism and inspirational flair for creative nonfiction. Subscribe to Texas Monthly, y'all. They deserve your support, and if you like this show, we promise you, you will not be disappointed. Anyway, the Childress Police got a phone call out of the blue from their counterparts down in Lockhart, the undisputed barbecue capital of the world. They'd gotten a report from some concerned parents whose young daughter was deeply disturbed by something she'd heard from another girl who was in town visiting from Childress. The Childress girl apparently had a dream, or more accurately, a nightmare about an older boy from back home. She said the boy was murdered by a group of bad people dressed in all black robes, who prayed to the devil the way that good folks pray to God. In the dream, the bad people surrounded this boy and strung him up by the neck until his feet stopped kicking. The bad people, she said, held their meetings in an abandoned house just outside of town, illuminated only by a blood-red light on the porch. And the parents of these bad people were part of it too, in fact, they'd run another boy down with their car just a few years earlier. As weird as it might sound, a police report like this wasn't nearly as uncommon during the satanic panic era as you might think. But what makes this one particularly strange is that the girl's dream was surprisingly accurate. Just a few years earlier, a 15-year-old had been struck and killed by a car while walking home from work one night, just outside of Childress. But that could be easily written off as a coincidence. People get hit by cars all the time and sadly, their killers often get away with it. But there was more. That kid had died in the road not far from an old derelict house that had recently burned down, one that the locals often described as haunted. Before it collapsed in the fire, the house was easy to recognize too, by the blood red light on its porch. The Childress PD thanked the Lockhart chief for the info, but what the hell were they supposed to do with it? What did it all mean? As Halloween approached, Rumors began circulating that the cult was planning to dig up Tate's body to steal his collarbone and the knuckle from his pinky finger for use in a satanic ritual. So naturally, some local teenagers were stoked to go to the cemetery and scope out that gnarly shit. We thought it'd be, well, fun. Get some dates, go out there, see what's happening. One of the teens later told a, quote, spellbound grand jury. We don't know his name, so we'll just call him Tim. 
They met up at the Childress Cemetery gates after nightfall, eight of them in all, and piled into the bed of his pickup truck. Tim drove slowly toward Tate Rowland's gravesite at the far end of the grounds, no radio, headlights off. They didn't want to get spotted by the cops, or anyone who might be hiding out there among the rows of headstones and the dark shadows between. You hear it? What is that? Is that music? Tim cut the motor. Everyone froze, eyes darting nervously in every direction, listening. Tate's grave was just up ahead, or at least they thought it was. It was close by. It was too dark to say for sure. It was just too dark. Where's it coming from? Y'all, gotta get out of here. Shut up. What? Everybody shut up for a second. Suddenly, a blinding light from straight ahead, two beams, headlights, an engine roaring to life, coming right at them. It's the cult! Drive, man! Drive! I'm trying! Go, go, go! Tim pushed the pedal to the floor, but the headlights were coming fast, catching the groundskeeping shed in its beams, and it lit it up like daylight. One of the girls pointed at it and screamed. The walls were covered in symbols, spray paint, maybe blood, fresh, dripping, shimmering red in the moonlight. Pentagrams, dozens of them, the sigil of Satan. They reached the gates and swerved out onto the road, the headlights right behind them. Hold on to something, y'all. Tim hit the gas, and the teens held on for dear life. Get to the drag! Also still open, people be there. Fuck that, go to the police station! The truck tore down the main drag, fast enough to put some distance between them and the headlights, but not fast enough to shake them. Tim cut hard into a parking lot and slammed on the brakes. Go on, let him chase me to the cops! The kids jumped out of the truck and scattered, making a mad dash in every direction as the headlights crept around the corner and caught them in the sights of their high beams. Go! Tim slammed on the gas and peeled out towards the police station. Come on, you bad mother. Come on. And the headlights sped after him. Thank God the others were going to make it. He was almost there, coming up on the courthouse now. He looked up at the headlights in the rear view right on his ass. Almost there, God damn it! He ain't going to die like that. Ain't nobody's sacrifice, you devil-loving motherfuckers. Suddenly the headlights flicked off, and the street was dark, empty, quiet. Oh, what the hell? Tim slowed the truck to a stop and looked over his shoulder to make sure his eyes weren't just playing tricks on him. They weren't. It was as if the car had just vanished the split second the headlights clicked off, almost like it had never been there at all. When the driver we've been calling Tim told this story to Hollinsworth, the reporter described watching this strange moment of realization and fear visibly wash over the young man's face. In what Hollinsworth described as a terrified whisper, Tim said, Is this gonna be in print? Is it? Oh lord, the cult's gonna get me for sure now. This was a big, burly guy, and Hollinsworth made a point to mention that he was a 240-pound linebacker, and this was four years after the fact. A few days after the Halloween headlights incident, a 15-year-old named Ray Wilkes was arrested after he had gotten drunk, stolen somebody's car, and wrapped it around a telephone pole. Ray was a troublemaker who, like Tate Rowland, was well acquainted with the cops and sheriff for all the wrong reasons. But unlike Tate, he lacked the good looks and charisma it apparently required to weasel out of whatever dust-ups with the law he got into. And that seems to have run in the family. Ray's father, Frank, and his older brother, Darwin, had racked up their fair share of felonies and misdemeanors over the years. And any time the Childress rumor mill got to spinning, the Wilkes clan often found themselves caught up in its churn, whether they deserved it or not. That night, after they'd dragged Ray's drunk ass out of the wreck of someone else's car and got him into the back of one of theirs, the officers on duty claimed he was ranting and raving at him about Satan the whole way back to the station. In fact, they said he confessed to being a member of the cult everybody's been talking about. Ray even insisted he'd been present at the hanging tree to watch Tate Roland die. 
To the cops, this felt like a terrifying validation of everything their training seminars and pamphlets had been warning them about. The cult was real, and they were the ones who'd made the first big bust, the one that was sure to break this whole secret cabal wide open. They were going to be heroes, but they got a little ahead of themselves. It was impossible for Ray Wilkes to have been at the hanging tree that night. In fact, he probably had the most rock-solid alibi anyone can have. He was in jail at the time. As far as the so-called confession goes, Ray said, quote, I don't remember saying anything because I was so drunk. Fair. The police decided it probably wasn't a good idea to slap a 15-year-old with a murder charge based solely on blackout drunk rambling. But still, there was something going on here with all this cult talk. It's not like all those seminars and checklists and Donahue specials my wife's always going on about are just... I mean, what? You think they just made all that shit up? I don't think so. Too many people talking about it. Serious people. Famous, too. And nobody got a reason to lie about that kind of thing. But they do. And they did. The cops who'd arrested Ray came away from that night with a truly unsettling impression of the boy. After all, as one officer put it, quote, His voice that night was very spooky. The CPD was going to keep their eye on Ray Wilkes, on that whole family of no good sons of bitches. Besides, everybody in town had seen the graffiti they got up there on the side of their rundown farmhouse. They tried to cover it up, but you can still make out the blood red letters beneath those uneven coats of cheap white paint. District Attorney McCoy thought it said the devil's den, but others swore up and down they saw the graffiti themselves, or well their friends saw it, or maybe they just heard it somewhere, but they knew for a fact it said, we worship the devil. When asked about it, Ray's father Frank scoffed and shook his head. Oh, hell. Apparently, a few years back, Ray had painted I Love Letty on the wall like a dumbass, hoping it might impress some girl from school he was sweet on at the time. I said, Ray, you get that shit off the wall, Frank said. So he painted over it, and now everybody thinks it says I love the devil. For a lot of folks, that kind of rational, plausible denial only made Frank and his sons all the more suspicious. Folks in town started referring to Frank's place as the devil house and the whole family, already outsiders at best and outlaws at worst, were shunned as pariahs. And they weren't alone. Ask any gym teacher you know, there's always more cultists to root out. And in Childress, the hunt was on. Full-grown adults began accusing their neighbors' kids of being Satan's minions, and the kids, following their parents' shining example, started accusing each other. One of Tate's friends, a nerdy kid named Clifton, said he was scared to even check out books from the library, believing his love of genre stories might get him branded as a devil worshipper, but giving up his favorite pastime out of an abundance of caution wasn't enough. He was accused anyway, and the harassment got so bad he ended up moving out of town for a few years just to, quote, get away from all the talk. But that was nothing compared to the vitriol directed at Tate's ex-girlfriend, Karen Hackler, the whole town blamed her for Tate's suicide, and now that everyone was convinced Tate had been murdered by Satanists, you'd think they'd finally leave her in peace, or at least cut her some slack. But the dark psychopathology of the Satanic Panic didn't work that way. Once a witch, always a witch. She was harassed and cursed and sneered at daily by her own neighbors and fellow churchgoers, people who used to be her friends. Teenagers would hold their fingers up in the shape of a cross when she passed them on the street, like they were warding off a vampire. Soon, everyone had it on very good authority that the girl who sells you cigarettes at the Allsups was the secret matriarch of the Luciferian underground. She was a temptress, a succubus, a demonic siren who lured the poor, hapless Tate into darkness and ultimately to his demise. 
Spells were cast in collective whispers, and she watched in horror, helpless as her deceased abuser supernaturally transfigured before her very eyes. Now he was the victim. Her victim. And Karen Hackler was the true abuser, and the queen of the willing damned. My name is smeared everywhere, she said. I don't know where it's come from, but I don't have to listen to that garbage. People who know me and my family know none of this is true. Childress just wants to believe it because this town has nothing else to do. Luckily, rumors and gossip, no matter how dark and enthralling they are, have a shelf life. The churn of the rumor mill slows with time, and after a couple years went by, the whispers had all but died out. Folks moved on, and the accused and afflicted alike could finally start piecing their lives back together from the wreckage. But the devil's work is never truly done, and soon his infernal shadow, long as night and twice as dark, fell over the town of Childress once more, filling the air with the blinding fog of paranoia and snuffing out their fleeting glimpse of daylight. May 31st, 1991. Three years had passed since Tate Rowland's death, and his older half-sister, Terry Trosper, was having a rough time. She and her husband had recently separated, and she'd given up custody of their four young daughters, leaving her alone in a dark place. The 22-year-old slipped into a deep and deepening depression, finding her only relief in self-medication and self-destruction. Her new boyfriend, a 28-year-old local named Ricky Bradford, was fresh out of the state pen, having served some time for aggravated assault. And that was just the latest rap on a long sheet of everything from DUI to attempted kidnapping. Having lost her family, Terry did her best to fill that void with Ricky's crowd of hard-partying scofflaws who District Attorney McCoy described as sorry to the core. And one of those sorry folks was Darwin Wilkes, Frank's eldest son, Ray's brother, and Ricky Bradford's right-hand man. It was Friday night, and Darwin had the devil house all to himself, since Ray was out doing God knows what, and Frank was spending the night in jail for punching a cop. Again. So Darwin called up Ricky, Terry, and the boys to come party hard and drink even harder. According to Ricky, everybody got super wasted, and as things started winding down, he and Terry crashed out in one of the bedrooms. At some point during the night, Terry got up and stumbled her way out into the living room, where she promptly passed out standing up and crumpled to the floor. The boys helped carry her back to bed and laid her down next to Ricky, who was still out cold and snoring. Ricky woke up at 9.30 the next morning, likely on account of that weird feeling you get after a night of partying where you're painfully dehydrated but also desperately need to take a piss. Anyway, he looked over at Terry, face down on the pillow, covered in puke, and he reached over the mess to shake her awake, but he recoiled at the touch of her flesh. She was so cold. He didn't even look at her. He, he couldn't. He didn't have to. Ricky staggered out into the living room where his friends were still passed out on the floor. I think she's dead, he said. She's dead. Terry's autopsy report showed her blood alcohol concentration to be 0.23, which, depending on her weight and other factors, could have been anywhere from 4 to 10 drinks. The cause of death was ruled pulmonary aspiration of vomit, or in layman's terms, puking while passed out and choking on it. The police found no evidence of foul play and closed the case as a simple, accidental death of despair. But the derelict old rumor mill, creaking and groaning its way back to life, picked right up where it left off, spinning lies into gossip, into lore, into truth, churning faster and faster than it ever had before. The autopsy report's conclusion couldn't be further from the truth. At least that's what we heard from Tammy down at the Supernails, who has a friend, Irene, whose brother used to work at a funeral home. Tate Rowland didn't string himself up from that big old spooky tree. 
he was murdered. And the sheriff, the DA, the mortician, all of them were covering it up. Everybody in town knows that. You honestly gonna tell me with a straight face that it's just a coincidence that Tate Rowland's sister up and choked on her own sick in that freaking devil house on accident? Please, you're not that gullible, are you? Terry's friends say she never believed the official story about Tate killing himself. Not for a second. Right up to her death, she never accepted it. She was hell-bent on finding out who killed him. She knew the truth and she was fixing to expose them all, so they shut her up for good, just like they'd done to her brother. That's a fact, and I should know, my daddy's a judge. Mark my words, the cults come back to Childress. And just between you and me, I ain't sure they ever left. And in a way, they were right. The biggest lies, after all, often sprout from the smallest kernels of truth. But we'll get to that later. When Ricky sat down for an interview with Hollinsworth, he told the reporter that Terry had been depressed as hell about the loss of her family, had been ever since they first started dating, and the never-ending, ever-evolving rumors about Tate's death only drove her deeper down into it. She'd attempted suicide once before, recently, by taking a bottle's worth of pills. He'd kept that information to himself, though, because, as far as he was concerned, it was nobody's business. The rumor mill already had way more than enough misery to chew on, and if the autopsy report really was wrong, like everybody was saying, then his best guess was that she just made damn sure to take two bottles worth this time. Ricky also made a point to mention that Terry did tell him once that Tate had warned her shortly before his death to keep her daughters in the house because there was a cult on the loose and they were looking for young blonde girls to sacrifice. But he quickly added, I've lived here all my life and I ain't never seen any kind of cult. Whether Tate's warning actually happened or not, it was almost certainly a byproduct of the rumor mill feedback loop that had completely consumed the town. Ricky, Terry, or both had likely just heard the same rumors as everybody else, and after enough repetition, they internalized it, convinced themselves it was a memory, and in doing so, they made it real. Is a lie still a lie, if everyone believes it? Frank Wilkes was brought in for questioning despite having been in jail the night Terry died. But his house was being considered a potential crime scene, and given the cloud of suspicion that already loomed over the Wilkes family for three years at this point, Frank had every reason to be as cooperative as he could. But sometimes honesty isn't the best policy when it comes to covering your own ass. So he told the cops that he distinctly remembered Ricky Bradford referring to himself as the devil, at least once or twice, maybe more. Being the devil was like, you know, kinda his thing. To be clear, Frank didn't actually buy into all this devil cult bullshit, but he intuited, probably correctly, that when your village starts hunting for witches, your best bet was to point some fingers before they get pointed at you. When denial becomes self-incrimination, the skeptic's only friend is the hangman. When he heard about Frank's claim, Ricky just rolled his eyes and said, Oh God, I don't believe in no Satan. But Ricky's siblings weren't just going to let Frank point fingers without pointing some of their own. Ricky's sister threw the accusations right back at the Wilkes family, saying, quote, I've listened to Darwin say that he works for the devil, and he knows the devil, personally. Ricky's brother went even further, claiming Darwin and Ray once invited him out to the graveyard to summon ghosts. Quote, Them Wilkes brothers been seen wearing black capes and doing Ouija boards and loading goats into a car. I ain't lying. Darwin responded to that, quote, Oh, shit. Me and Ray do crazy things when we get pissed off at people. We say we're masters of Satan, and we say horns gonna come out our heads. That's just having some fun. We don't believe in nothing. We're atheists. All these rumors about devil worship in this town, it's just made up 
bullshit by people who's scared. And while the rest of the town was busy crying witch, Jimmy and Brenda Rowland were alone with their grief. The wound Tate's death left in their heart was still just as fresh as the day Jimmy cut his son down from that tree. And now, only three years later, they had yet another funeral to attend. Terry's passing would mark the fourth time Jimmy Rowland would bury his own child. And all this cult stuff aside, he and Brenda had their own suspicions that the law had done less than everything it could about Tate. And now, Terry's death felt like deja vu all over again. Sheriff Lane was adamant that no further investigation was needed into Tate's suicide. A little too adamant, if you ask folks around town. On some level, Lane probably knew he jumped the gun on closing the case, or at least skimmed over a detail or two. But that only further begged the question, was the sheriff just covering his own ass? Or was he covering up for the cult? In the panic's climate of paranoia, the overlap between self-delusion and self-preservation can make things hard to parse, but the rumor mill doesn't churn on nuance. After years of speculation and suspicion, the people of Childress finally got the answer they'd been waiting for, maybe even hoping for. Only days after Terry's death, Sheriff Lane got busted for dealing weed to local teens while in uniform and suddenly found himself on the wrong side of the bars. And everybody in town knew what that meant. The DPS checklist of the occult made it clear as Crystal Pepsi. Drug pushing was practically a dead giveaway for allegiance to Satan. Now there was no doubt in anybody's mind that he'd been in cahoots with the cult all along, if not a full-fledged blood-guzzling cultist himself. After Lane's arrest, it was clear to everyone that the official narratives of Tate and Terry's deaths had just gone up in smoke. And that smoke stank an awful lot like sulfur. Luckily, there was a new sheriff in town, Reese Bowen, a Childress native who knew the area well and most of the folks in it too. They trusted him. And that went a long way in a town where no one seemed to trust to anyone anymore. But putting on that badge was like stepping into the eye of a hurricane swirl of rumors, conspiracy theories, mania, and fear. Bowen did his best to put everyone at ease, and even agreed to Jimmy and Brenda's demand for a real investigation. The sheriff and his new deputy, Kevin Overstreet, dusted off the old case file and got to work re-interviewing every witness and anyone who might know something more substantial than a whisper from their hairstylist. Deputy Overstreet even made the 400-mile drive down to Lockhart just to follow up on the police report that, again, was based entirely on a little girl's bad dream. To our complete surprise, it didn't turn up any new leads. But we hope that while he was down there, Overstreet at least got some Smitty's barbecue for his troubles. Only three weeks after Terry's death, the Devil House came dangerously close to claiming yet another soul within its walls. Darwin Wilkes was found unconscious on the floor after taking upwards of 30 pills of an antidepressant drug called Ellaville. Beside him was a handwritten suicide note. I know something the cops don't know. I know who killed Terry Trosper. I can't live anymore. But he did waking up hours later in a hospital bed, surrounded by police who had a whole lot of questions for him. He told them he had no idea what happened, and he certainly didn't remember writing any note, so the cops just cut to the chase. Who killed Terry Trosper? He swore to God he didn't know. He didn't have any reason to think anyone even had. It was just an accident, wasn't it? Sheriff Bowen couldn't get a good read on the kid. Maybe he was telling the truth. Maybe he was just a good liar. Darwin, for his part, agreed to the sheriff's request to take a polygraph test just as soon as he got out of the hospital. But when the doctors released him the next day, Darwin hopped in his car and made a beeline for Dallas. Bowen let it slide for now, 
If Darwin had any money at all, it sure as hell wasn't Dallas money, and he'd come running back to his daddy's place soon enough. Besides, the sheriff had more pressing matters to attend to, like calling in a forensic pathologist he knew from Amarillo, Dr. Sparks Vesey, to give him a second opinion on the autopsy results. And yes, Dr. Sparks Vesey is an objectively kick-ass name. And yes, we will take every reasonable opportunity to use the name in full for the remainder of the episode. And yes, we're not sorry. When he saw the photo of the rope burns on Tate's neck, Vesey was astonished that no one thought it warranted a formal autopsy. These were two distinct and separate ligature marks, the medical term for what we've been calling rope burns. The first one, above the Adam's apple, was exactly what you'd expect to find after a full suspension hanging. But the second mark, much lower down on the neck, wasn't really consistent with that. It's possible that it came from failed hanging attempts prior to death, but a mark like that was more what you'd expect to find after a strangulation. On the recommendation of Dr. Sparks Vesey, arrangements were made to exhume Tate Rowland's remains from Childress Cemetery exactly three years and one day after he'd been laid to rest there. And it's important for us to note that exhumation is fairly uncommon in general, but disinterment for the purpose of an autopsy is extremely rare. There's a lot of legal hurdles involved, like permits, archaeological supervision, specialized contractors, ethical concerns, permission from the next of kin and the cemetery property owners, not to mention the legal rights of the dead themselves, which remain surprisingly intact, even if their actual remains don't. So it was kind of a big deal for a disinterment autopsy to happen in a place like Childress, and law enforcement had to have a damn good reason to go through with it. Namely, new, compelling evidence that the case in question was a murder. The rumor mill and local media quickly took it upon themselves to start divining what they could from the still-buried entrails. The front-page headline of the Childress Index declared, Autopsy to determine if death was sacrifice. And that discordant convergence of small-town drama and speculative anthropomancy also happens to be the universal siren song of the muckrakers. On the day of the exhumation, crowds of locals, curious out-of-towners, and TV cameras from stations all over West Texas and the Panhandle gathered around the Childress Cemetery shortly before dawn to witness the spectacle of, well, a crew of workers methodically digging a hole for hours before eventually hauling a box out of the ground and loading it into the back of a car. It probably didn't live up to the demonic despoiling they seemed to be hoping for, but luckily District Attorney McCoy was on the scene to give the people and the cameras what they wanted. McCoy used his impromptu airtime to announce two major-ish developments in the case. First, he claimed to have received an anonymous death threat in recent days, which was apparently so sinister that it didn't require any details or further explanation. The second development came out of Sheriff Bowen's recent interview with Chad Johnston, whose story changed yet again. In this new third telling, there was no longer a failed first attempt, no trip back to the Rollins' house to fetch another rope, and no three-minute break to go check the road for passing cars. According to McCoy, Chad said, Tate started jacking around with the rope by swinging around the tree with it, and then I went to take a leak, and when I came back, Tate had hung himself. Granted, three years had passed since he'd last talked about that tragic night, and like we'll get to in part three, memories can be a tricky thing. Still, Chad's waffling on his story and his inability to explain it raised some reasonable suspicions. And since he'd retconned the failed hanging attempt out of the cannon, that second rope burn on Tate's neck no longer had any plausible explanation. Except, of course, foul play. 
Once McCoy had had his fill of the limelight, the reporters turned to the crowd looking for local yokels to interview about their run-ins with the devil. One man told them he'd personally seen the cultists with his own two eyes dancing around a bonfire on the banks of the Red River just the other day. As soon as his words hit the airwaves, other people in town suddenly and coincidentally remembered seeing that very same thing too, or at least they'd heard it from a friend who say they saw it somewhere, and they probably did, on television earlier that day. Repetition makes rumors into memories, and the feedback loop churns on. Meanwhile, Dr. Sparks Veazey wasn't having much luck with the autopsy. Tate's casket hadn't been sealed properly before burial, and as you can probably imagine, when a casket isn't airtight, things can get a little messy. The decomposition was far too advanced to provide much of anything conclusive, but he did find one thing, traces of a drug in Tate's bloodstream at the time of death, Elevil, the same antidepressant that nearly killed Darwin Wilkes just a few weeks earlier. It was a fairly common drug at the time, but doctors rarely prescribe it these days because, well, taking too much is likely to kill you. It's the same stuff that killed legendary musician Nick Drake back in 1974, and it wasn't the kind of drug most people would consider recreational. If you take more than the recommended dose and manage not to die, it still wouldn't be all that much fun, unless of course you get your kicks out of instantly falling asleep. I'm starting to think I kinda do. This was a potential link between Tate's death and Darwin's close brush with it. But instead of shining some light on the case like they hoped, the discovery only served to thicken the already convoluted plot. But the thicker the plot, the better the grist, and the mill slurped it up, swirled it around, and spat out a bombshell. All of the pamphlets warned this would happen. The Satanists were obviously using these antidepressants to sedate their victims in preparation for ritual blood sacrifice. I mean, duh. In September 1991, D.A. McCoy convened the grand jury to examine the findings and question the witnesses. Both Darwin Wilkes and Chad Johnston were subpoenaed to testify, but neither bothered to show up. Their refusal to comply with court orders definitely didn't do them any favors in their quest to shake the town's suspicions, and their absence left the court proceedings with an abysmal void of credibility and purpose. In lieu of Darwin and Chad's potentially valuable testimonies, the grand jury was treated to hours of phantasmagorical hearsay from local randos, like a town hall meeting in hell. The so-called witnesses swore up and down they'd seen all kinds of disturbing activity around town, including a man standing on the street corner in broad daylight, ripping pages out of a Bible and eating them while he foamed at the mouth. Meanwhile, in the real world, Tate's exhumation exposed more loose ends than it tied up, so Dr. Sparks Veazey turned his attention and scrutiny to Terry Trosper's autopsy report and found some glaring red flags. First, there was the question of how Terry could have choked on her own vomit if she'd been lying face down, and then there was the signature at the bottom of the page, Dr. Ralph Erdman. It was a name Veazey had been hearing a lot lately, and not on account of his sterling reputation. Erdman was a forensic pathologist for hire and the go-to medical examiner for dozens of West Texas counties for about a decade at that point, and he was currently under investigation for two counts of misconduct on the job, but we'll get back to Dr. Erdman in a bit. Sheriff Bowen and the grand jury agreed with Veazey's recommendation. Terry's remains, like her brother's, would have to be exhumed for a second autopsy. It was the only way to know for sure that the case was handled properly and that no criminal wrongdoing had been overlooked. And maybe more importantly, it was the only way to bring true closure to a town consumed by paranoia before it could tear itself apart. 
It was the week before Halloween 1991, and crowds lined the perimeter of Childress Cemetery for their second chance at being utterly let down by the spectacle of people digging up a box. Ever since Tate's exhumation, the mystery surrounding the deaths was drawing more and more media attention every day. And on that late October afternoon in a small town graveyard, there were damn near as many cameras as there were tombstones. With the devil's birthday mere days away. That's a riff on our old friend Jack Chick, in case you were wondering. Dr. Sparks Veazey completed the autopsy and presented his findings to the sheriff. It was true that Terry had died from asphyxiation, but not from choking on vomit. Veazey was, quote, 70% sure that her death was no accident. There were contusions in her mouth and all along her inner thighs, indicative of a violent assault, specifically one in which an assailant pinned her legs to the ground, while a second assailant held her mouth and nose shut until she stopped breathing. 70% wasn't absolute certainty, but in Dr. Veazey's professional opinion, Terry Trosper's true cause of death was likely suffocation, murder. And that wasn't all. Blood tests also confirmed the presence of a certain antidepressant in her system, Ellaville. District Attorney McCoy called a press conference and announced that his office was opening a new investigation into the death of Terry Trosper as a homicide, and they had reason to believe that there were at least two individuals involved in the murder. The unidentified killers, he told the cameras, were still at large. They could be anyone, and you could be next. At that point, according to Hollinsworth, it was damn near impossible to find anyone in Childress who didn't believe a satanic cult had infiltrated the town, and everyone had a story to tell. There were reports of black-robed fiends holding secret meetings behind the dry cleaners. Someone found a baby lamb dead in a cotton field with its heart ripped out. One person claimed to watch him petrifying terror as a man demonstrated his black magic by pointing at somebody's cat and commanding it to die. It's unclear whether the cat actually dropped dead on the spot or if the witness just saw some guy yelling at a cat. Either way, it was totally devil magic. After the exhumations, the rumors were spreading faster than ever, and by the time anyone had a chance to investigate or disprove one of these wild claims, there'd already be five more in circulation. Besides, no one wanted to appear too skeptical, too eager to debunk what good, normal Christian citizens had seen with their very own eyes. With all this hullabaloo about a Luciferian cult, the First Baptist Church of Childress decided it might be prudent to address the issue before things got out of hand. So they hired a team of experts to host an educational seminar open to the public, all are welcome, to help get everyone on the same page and hopefully dispel all these baseless rumors before someone else gets hurt. Just kidding. It was a rousing and fact-free shitshow, where self-proclaimed occult experts told 450 terrified and spellbound locals and police that their town was infested with bloodthirsty cultists who were using heavy metal music to secretly teach teenagers how to dig up bodies from the cemetery for sex. Seriously. It's easy to laugh, and it's kinda hard not to, but it's important to remember that the seminar attendees were just ordinary, everyday people being told by authority figures they trusted that these were legit experts. And the presentation itself had that superficial yet convincing veneer of scientific credibility and professionalism. Plus, all of this was happening in a time before the internet was something the average American had even heard of. It's easy to forget sometimes that back then people still understood and respected expertise. And to them, research was something academic scholars did while poring over dense tomes in a library for hours on end. Not a thing you do by watching YouTube videos on your phone while you're taking a dump at work. It was a different time. 
Soon after the church seminar made things undeniably worse, the grand jury reconvened to hear the new evidence and determine how to proceed from here. It seems like there was testimony from half the damn town, so we'll just give you the highlights. Karen Hackler, Tate's ex, claimed she never heard anything about a cult until after Tate's funeral when the rumors started. Her parents said Tate even called the house on the day of his death and mentioned having thoughts of suicide. Chad Johnston showed up this time, and when it was his turn, he stuck to his third version of the story. As D.A. McCoy put it, Chad said Tate thought Karen was messing with his mind, and Tate got sick of it. He thought he could make her feel sorry. When asked if he could explain the second rope burn on Tate's neck, all Chad could say was, I don't know. Ricky Bradford and Darwin Wilkes had both been summoned to testify, and of course, both immediately skipped town. But Frank Wilkes, the master of the Devil House himself, agreed to take the stand, and he dropped a bombshell right out of the gate. He said Darwin had confessed to him that someone who was at the party that night murdered Terry, but he didn't know who, or at least he didn't say. It was also revealed that Frank's elderly father had an active prescription for Ellaville and that he kept a sizable stash of it at his house. But for the most part, all the new information was more or less just hearsay or circumstantial, and at the end of the day, the grand jury adjourned without much to show for it. Reporters confronted D.A. McCoy outside the courthouse and asked him, uh, Mr. McCoy, uh, who killed Terry Trosper? To which he confidently replied, We're just one witness away from knowing that. But whoever that witness might be, they weren't talking. Four months went by without anything McCoy could tout as progress. Investigators didn't have much to work from in the first place, and having to sift through the constant flood of rumors, bogus tips, and dead ends made it difficult, if not impossible, to pursue every lead. The more rumors folks spread, the more the case would drag out, and the more it dragged out, the more rumors there were to spread. Ironically, the town's obsession with the case seemed to all but ensure that it would never be solved. But one afternoon, Sheriff Bowen got some unexpected visitors down at the office. Sheriff, we got some stuff you might want to hear. About Terry. Ever since they posted the $1,000 reward for information leading to the capture of the killers, Bowen had a half dozen or so folks dropping by every day to give him the same pitch, and then proceed to ramble on like loons about demon cults, just cause some kid in a Ramon shirt looked at him crossways down at the outlet mall. If it had been anyone else, Bowen would have told him to just leave a brief report with the secretary as brief as you can make it and thank you kindly, y'all have a blessed day now, okay? Okay then. But the folks darkening his doorstep that day were Frank and Darwin Wilkes, probably the last people he'd expect to see. Well, without a deputy dragging them in by the handcuffs, that is. And here they were, seemingly of their own volition, and they weren't even all that drunk yet. Alright boys, uh, let's have us a chat. Last night, they had a barbecue out at the house, had a few folks over, nothing fancy, and Ricky Bradford shows up. And everybody was drinking, you know, but Ricky looked like he'd had a few on the road over, too. So they was all drinking and talking, and Ricky hears Terry's name come up. Who mentioned her name? Who, who brought her up? Shoot, can't say for sure, you know, drinking, but she just come up and passing, or the like. Okay, then what happened? Then, all of a sudden, Ricky just blows up. He says, yeah, I killed the bitch, just like that. He's all red in the face, real fucking pissed off, and he says to Darwin, he says, Look here, you tell anyone about this, I'ma burn down that shit house of yours and cut your goddamn eyes out. And then he up and drives off. Just like that, huh? Just like that. The sheriff would have been the first to tell you, the Wilkeses weren't the kind of people you'd accuse of having too much credibility. But sitting across from them there in the office, they looked dead serious and uncharacteristically sincere. And with all the rumors and accusations flying around, 
Frank and Darwin's story might have been the most believable he'd heard in weeks. It was far from a smoking gun, but it was a whole lot better than the overflowing stacks of nothing they already had in the case file. Bowen brought the news to McCoy and the other investigators, but they all agreed that their case against Ricky Bradford, as it stood right now, was a weak one at best. But they also knew that the second Ricky got wind of all this, which wouldn't take long in this town, he'd be halfway to Mexico by nightfall if he didn't kill somebody first. So they decided to just bite the bullet and pull the trigger while they still had the element of surprise. Ricky Bradford was arrested later that day and charged with one count of first-degree murder in the death of Terry Trosper. Ricky insisted he was innocent and that Darwin was just trying to frame him to get the $1,000 reward, which Darwin did in fact collect. And though Ricky didn't know it at the time, there was another thing Darwin stood to gain from pointing the finger at his own best friend. After disappearing to Dallas to avoid taking the sheriff's polygraph test, he rolled back into town about a week later and was immediately picked up by the sheriff. And reluctantly, Darwin agreed to submit to the lie detector. Quick side note. According to the American Psychological Association, most psychologists agree that there's little basis for the validity of polygraph tests, and most courtrooms in America no longer accept them as legit evidence. In short, lie detectors are bullshit pseudoscience, and cops only use them nowadays as a coercive interrogation technique on suspects they think are too dumb to know better. Just a helpful tip in case you ever get arrested for being part of a satanic murder cult, which is, unfortunately, much less of a joke than we wish it were. Part 3 man. Darwin passed the polygraph on every question, except one. Did you smother Terry Trosper? No. Machine says that's a lie, son. No, I'm not lying. I swear that's the truth. Fuck your machine. I ain't kill nobody. The cops was just trying to frame me, Darwin said later. Hell, I was asleep the whole time she's supposed to have been killed. I couldn't have smothered anyone. Of course, that wasn't much of an alibi given that it applied to everyone who was at the house that night. They were all drunk and all claimed to have been passed out at the time of Terry's death. No one at the scene would have been capable of confirming or denying with any real credibility whether or not they'd seen any of the others get up at some point during the night. And even if they could, they wouldn't know what time it was, where they were going, or if they'd just gotten up to puke or take a piss. The lie detector wasn't proof, but it was evidence, and it was more than enough to bump Darwin Wilkes up to the top of Sheriff Bowen's list of suspects. Darwin had every reason to be worried, and a very plausible motive for wanting to get the heat off himself by doing what everyone else in town had been doing for months, pointing fingers at the closest witch they could find, even if that meant throwing Ricky, his own best friend, under the bus. Still, it doesn't make much sense, to us at least, why the sheriff didn't arrest Darwin after the failed polygraph test. Not because we think it was warranted, but because he arrested Ricky so quickly and based solely on hearsay given to him by the prime suspect in his own case. The evidence against both of them was more or less equivalent at that point, and when a woman is presumed murdered by two people, the first two suspects on anyone's list are the boyfriend and the best friend. So why not arrest them both? When he came to claim the reward money for selling out Ricky, Darwin agreed to undergo a second polygraph test, and this time he passed it 100%. Again, that doesn't mean much of anything either way, and not even DA McCoy was completely convinced that they had the right man in custody. The autopsies were a mess, and the rumor mill had turned half the town into self-proclaimed witnesses, and all that paranoid, self-serving, vindictive finger-pointing cast out on the credibility of everyone, even those who were actual witnesses. 
District Attorney McCoy, for all his media showboating, had deep reservations about prosecuting a case so weak. Ricky Bradford is a sorry individual, he said, but I don't want to send him to prison just for being sorry. But with all the media attention fueling an already out of control rumor mill, the people of Childress were living in constant fear for themselves and their children. It didn't matter if the Satanists lurking behind every corner were real or just shadows playing tricks on a paranoid mind, because the effect it was having on their lives, relationships, and mental health was undeniably real. The people needed certainty, normalcy, closure, and they needed it fast, before the town's unraveling social fabric and sanity completely came apart. Unfortunately, folks in a situation like that tend to conflate closure with the word justice, and they couldn't have justice unless Ricky was locked away for good and all his cohorts were rounded up, whether he was actually guilty or if those cohorts even existed at all. It simply didn't matter. McCoy knew that if he didn't throw the book at Ricky, no matter how weak the case might be, the whole town was gonna see it as a miscarriage of justice, incompetence, or worse, collusion with the cult. He was at the mercy of their pitchforks, and maybe the only way to break the spell of hysteria to end the years of rumors and madness was to give them what they wanted. Maybe that's why they moved so quickly to arrest Ricky in the first place. The mob was getting restless, so maybe McCoy gave them a witch to burn. And if Ricky was innocent, well, maybe a ritual sacrifice would be enough. It didn't matter who you were, how young, how healthy, how smart, skeptical, or careful, paranoia is contagious and no one is immune. In the lead up to Ricky's grand jury hearing, someone found a white cat dead on the side of the road, its chest ripped open and its heart removed, nowhere to be found. When Sheriff Bowen saw the photo, all he could do was shake his head. I don't know what it means, he said, but it's gotta mean something. But it doesn't, and it didn't. Repetition turns exposure into infection. A few weeks later, a middle-aged couple living in town was apparently discovered to have, quote, pornographic and satanic artwork in their home. Things like an outline of Texas with a pentagram in it, which sounds like a badass t-shirt we should probably make for our Patreon. Did we mention we have a Patreon? Anyway, it's unclear why the cops had searched their home in the first place, or why they didn't think that art was super badass. All we know is that McCoy seemed to think it was justified, and that he'd found, quote, some kind of staff that the priest of a cult organization is supposed to have. It's unclear what kind of staff those organizations are supposed to have, or where the DA got his knowledge of infernal scepters, but for the record, Hollinsworth describes the object in his article as, quote, a thick metal rod. And then, not long after the raid, D.A. McCoy's house mysteriously burned to the ground. The fire marshal ruled it a very not mysterious accident, but McCoy wasn't so sure. First thing I thought was someone was after me, he said. Anything can be made to look accidental. Repetition makes coincidences look like patterns. And it wasn't confined to the city limits. A woman reportedly stopped at the courthouse to ask if it was safe to drive past the hanging tree for fear that the cultist might attack her car. Even a reporter from the Amarillo local news said he wouldn't set foot in Childress without packing a gun. We all feel violated by the attention, the courthouse clerk said. There are kids in Childress doing great things, really great things. They're not in cults. And for the record, everything she said is true. The black stain this whole ordeal put on the town's reputation was enough to make folks long for the days when people were afraid of Leatherface stalking around the Allsups with a chainsaw. 
it sucks. Ricky's trial was set for September 1992, and in the intervening six months, Skip Hollinsworth interviewed the families involved to see how they were holding up. The Hackler family told him they felt like they'd been dragged through the mud and their daughter Karen was still facing harassment on a near daily basis. They felt especially betrayed by D.A. McCoy, whom they accused of taking advantage of Tate's death to get the publicity for himself. We're victims of lies. The Wilkes family wasn't faring much better themselves. Darwin and his girlfriend had just had a baby, and as he put it, Every time she goes out of the house, just to go someplace like the grocery store, people make her cry. They're saying, oh, you're the one that has Satan's child. His dad, Frank, said he was struggling to find work, even just a part-time farm job. And it wasn't just on account of his prolific criminal record, either. People won't have nothing to do with me, he said. When I get near him, they step back and say, don't you put a spell on me. He did his best to keep a sense of humor about it, though. He told Hollinsworth he'd gone out to the VFW hall with a lady who the whole town thinks is a high priestess just because she's seen with me. A woman came up to their table and asked for a magic potion to cure her boyfriend's skin rash. So the high priestess went to the lady's room and filled a shot glass with calamine lotion. When she got back to the table, she handed it to the woman and told her, Rub this all over him and it'll go away. And it did. The satanic magic of anti-itch cream is very potent indeed. The old gal later thanked us, Frank said. So hell, maybe something good came out of this mess after all. But Tate and Terry's parents, Jimmy and Brenda Rowland, still didn't have the closure they so desperately needed. And without it, they couldn't let go of the rumors. They had nothing else to hold on to. There must have been something to this, or else these rumors wouldn't have all gotten started, Brenda said. Rumors don't get started on nothing, you know. But they do. And they did. No one at the time of this recording, anyway, has ever confessed to being a cultist in Childress, and there's never been any credible evidence that a cult ever existed in the town at all. In fact, according to the late Margaret Singer, world-renowned expert on cult psychology and brainwashing, there were around 5,000 known cults in America as of 2003, and not one of them was satanic. But if something imaginary can claim this many victims, destroy this many lives, and possess an entire town for years, it might be fair to say that the delusional belief in a secret devil cult is far more dangerous and destructive than any real one could have ever been. Within the span of less than four years, the satanic panic had turned Childress, Texas into a town of 6,000 unreliable narrators who could no longer trust anyone, even their own friends. And don't forget, we're talking about an isolated rural small town in a time before the internet. Childress wasn't an anomaly. If anything, it was late to the party. This was 1992. By that point, the entirety of America had been the devil's playground for over a decade, and it still wasn't over. Like we said earlier, we could barely find anything about this case outside of Hollinsworth's article. And since the article ends before Ricky's trial began, we don't really know for sure what happened after that. We ran a Texas criminal background check on Ricky Bradford and found that he's currently serving a life sentence in Huntsville for a first-degree murder conviction in September 1992. Without any court records or news coverage of the trial, we have no idea how it went down, who testified, or what evidence was presented. Although it would be extremely unlikely if it weren't, we technically can't even say for sure if his conviction was for the murder of Terry Trosper. It probably was, but as strange as it sounds, we can't prove it. And this story, we're sad to say, ends with a lot of unanswered questions and a very frustrating lack of closure. But we'll come back to that. 
there's still an epilogue of sorts we need to get to first. In the immediate aftermath of Terry's death, Brenda and Jimmy Rowland were absolutely certain that the investigations into their children's deaths had been incompetent and incomplete at best. Whether it was all a sinister, satanic cover-up or just sloppy police work, the Rowlands had a hunch that there was more to the story. Their gut said dig, so we did. Remember that pathologist who performed Terry's first autopsy? Not Dr. Sparks VZ, of course, but the one who ruled her death an accident by claiming erroneously that she choked on her own vomit. His name was Dr. Ralph Erdman, and even though it's not exactly a big piece of this puzzle, we still think it qualifies as a little more to the story. And not just in the Childress case, but in the broader story of how and why the satanic panic happened the way it did. In most American cities, autopsies on potential crime victims are done by medical examiners who work for the local government where the investigation is taking place. But in rural jurisdictions, especially back then, they didn't have the budget to hire their own full-time pathologists, so they had to bring in outside contractors anytime a case required that kind of work. And throughout the 1980s, Dr. Erdman was the forensic pathologist contracted by 48 counties throughout West Texas and the Panhandle. His contract with Lubbock County alone was grossing him $140,000 a year. Adjusted for 2020 inflation, that's about a quarter million bucks. And because he was so good at cranking out autopsies in record time, he was performing as many as 400 per year. That's more than one autopsy per day if he never took a single day off. Like we mentioned earlier, Dr. Erdman was facing a series of complaints over alleged misconduct shortly after he did Terry's autopsy. So when Lubbock police officer Bill Hubbard was reassigned to the ID section of the department a few months later, he inherited a folder overflowing with complaints about Dr. Erdman. Hubbard tried to find a rationalization for what he was reading, but he just couldn't make any sense of it any other way. The only conclusion he could draw from it all was that Lubbock County District Attorney Travis Ware was, and had been for some time, colluding with Dr. Erdman to produce problematic, if not outright fraudulent, autopsy results and expert witness testimony for cases they wanted to win. If this was true, then innocent people were going to jail and guilty people were going free, all for the benefit of, and at the behest of, prosecutors and police departments, not just in Lubbock, but throughout West Texas. So Officer Hubbard respectfully confronted Ware about the complaints, hoping for a reasonable explanation, something he must have missed. Instead, Ware essentially told him to keep his mouth shut and his head down, or he'd be liable to find himself in a world of hurt. Hubbard wasn't having it, but it was pretty clear to him by the end of the meeting that Ware didn't much care whether he was having it or not. And soon, Hubbard would find himself the target of an intimidation campaign he described as, quote, something out of a mafia movie. Hubbard wasn't the first to complain about Erdman's conduct, of course, but he would be the first member of law enforcement to take the stand during a capital murder hearing and testify under oath about Erdman and Ware's corruption. And all three network stations in Lubbock would have cameras in the room when it happened. Ware began conspiring with his right-hand assistant, Rebecca Ashley, to destroy Hubbard, or as they preferred to call him, quote, that motherfucker. The plan was to frame him for a crime he didn't commit. If they couldn't get him to shut up, they could at least wreck his credibility and send a message to any other cops who might be thinking about growing a conscience. You fuck with the system, you get the cage. While the most powerful DA in all of West Texas was busy plotting against his own police officers, Dr. Erdman was now under investigation for a litany of offenses in multiple counties, the most prominent of which revolved around the autopsy of a man named Craig Newman. 
Newman had been found dead on the floor of his Leveland home, and Erdman's autopsy report concluded that the cause of death was an accidental overdose on cocaine. The family was shocked, confused, and kind of pissed off. They insisted unequivocally that Newman had never used drugs in his life. There had to be something wrong here, they thought. So they pored over the details of the report, and one thing immediately stood out to them, like a liberal in Childress, the weight of Newman's spleen. It was, at best, an egregious oversight on the part of the pathologist. Craig Newman didn't have a spleen. It had been removed in surgery years before he died. That tiny detail, much to the chagrin of D.A. Ware, was something Lubbock authorities couldn't ignore. A judge immediately ordered the body exhumed, and a second autopsy found no trace of cocaine in the man's body. It had simply been a run-of-the-mill heart attack. But that was kind of beside the point, because no incisions had been made in Newman's body at all. Dr. Ralph Erdman had never conducted the autopsy. He just made up the whole report. If Erdman was just faking results out of laziness, it would have been a lot safer to simply claim it was a heart attack. Not only would it have been inadvertently correct, but it would have given him at least some plausible deniability. Why choose something as specific, relatively rare, and easy to disprove as a cocaine overdose? Glad you asked, because it was soon revealed that before he took the body for examination, Erdman had been within earshot of a cop at the scene who floated a guess about Newman's cause of death. Could have been an overdose, maybe like cocaine or something. Defense attorneys throughout the region immediately cried foul. Not only did this call into question every single criminal case Erdman had ever been involved with, which again was thousands, his seeming eagerness to craft narratives that aligned perfectly with the assumptions of police aroused very reasonable suspicion of a cover-up, especially given the reactions to the news from regional prosecutors. Most of them gave full-throated, outraged denials with a distinct air of the lady doth protest too much, and the rest responded in ways that were just, well, bizarre. Randall County DA Randy Sherrod, for example, who'd worked with Erdman on dozens of criminal cases over the years, told the New York Times that the doctor was a weird kook who doesn't know his left from his right. And he even acknowledged that Erdman had lied about his qualifications. Some of his work habits are strange, he said. He has a fascination with carrying around body parts and storing some in his refrigerator. The fact that he didn't seem all that concerned about any of that was a little odd on its own. But odder still, he went on to defend the quality of Erdman's results. I wouldn't use Erdman again, ever, based on what I know now. But I never saw an autopsy by Erdman that wasn't correct on the basis of um, other evidence. For his part, Sherrod did open grand jury proceedings against Erdman for falsifying evidence in a case, but still insisted at the very same time that all the autopsy findings in that very same case were correct and admissible, which is weird. A special prosecutor, Tommy Turner, was assigned to oversee the growing number of investigations into Erdman's misconduct. He said, quote, There are clear indications that a number of people in law enforcement considered him weird and questioned his competence because he regularly messed up evidence and he did strange things like handing people organs to hold. But no one blew the whistle. We started digging up bodies, and when we were seven for seven, we decided that in the interest of judicial economy, we didn't have to go further to prove that this guy was a liar. Turner's team looked into a total of 300 autopsies that Erdman had conducted and found that a third of them contained deeply problematic errors when they weren't faked altogether. Less than two weeks after Ricky Bradford's arrest in Childress for Terry's murder, the man who faked her autopsy was indicted in Lubbock on seven counts of evidence tampering and falsifying autopsy reports. 
Erdman tried to explain it all away as just clerical errors and claimed the whole thing was a hoax cooked up by quote, revenge-minded defense attorneys. It was, in his words, a witch hunt, which in this episode is just too deliciously ironic for us to leave out. Former Dallas County Assistant Medical Examiner Dr. Linda Norton told reporters that Erdman performed, quote, made-to-order autopsies that support a police version of a story. And even though he was basically the Whataburger of falsifying evidence, he really sucked at it. Some of Dr. Erdman's findings, she said, are so wrong as to be an insult to the intelligence of an average human being. Like the time he performed an autopsy on a guy who'd been shot in the head and concluded that the cause of death was pneumonia. He was also known to perform autopsies in funeral home parking lots, though he usually preferred, as one attorney generously put it, to take his work home with him. Home, in this case, being a derelict shack turned laboratory in Amarillo with no running water, no air conditioning, and no working sewage. According to the Seattle Times, he quote, worked on a rusty table set up on wooden blocks with no drainage, except when the body smelled really bad, and then he worked outdoors on a closet door propped up on 50-gallon drums to let the body fluids drain to the ground. During an interview with 60 Minutes that was filmed inside his home laboratory, the cameraman inadvertently caught footage of the inside of Erdman's kitchen refrigerator which clearly showed several vials of blood and urine nonchalantly shoved between a jar of jelly and a bottle of picante sauce. Investigators in plain view sent him the body of a decapitated woman to examine, but he didn't return the corpse for eight years. When he finally sent back the remains, there was nothing left but bones, one of which was a skull. He'd forgotten that the victim had been decapitated and assumed he'd simply misplaced her head, which apparently is just an everyday oopsie. He reckoned it was best to play it safe, so before sending back the remains, he tossed in the skull of a random 14-year-old boy from some unrelated case, hoping no one would notice. And that somehow wasn't the first time that happened. He'd previously misplaced a head in an investigation for Odessa, another oopsie that resulted in a mistrial in a capital murder case. He later admitted that the head eventually just turned up again, but since the case was already closed, he simply threw it in the trash. Yes, like the regular trash you put on the curb every Wednesday. And despite those pretty glaring clerical errors, Dr. Erdman stayed on the job for years without so much as a slap on the wrist, even enjoying heaps of public praise from prosecutors like Travis Ware. So yeah, maybe West Texas defense attorneys had a point. They claimed Erdman was being protected by prosecutors because he had a knack for telling them exactly what they wanted to hear. As true crime writer Jim Fisher put it, quote, If the prosecution needed a victim or suspect to have alcohol in his or her blood, that was not a problem. If a certain time of death was necessary to incriminate a defendant, Dr. Erdman would provide it, even if such a precise estimation was scientifically infeasible. Erdman surrendered his Texas medical license in exchange for 10 years probation and a $17,000 fine, all as part of a plea deal arranged by none other than District Attorney Travis Ware. It wasn't a gesture of good faith toward the doctor, though. It was a strategic move to keep himself from getting dragged into a protracted, highly publicized trial that would have almost certainly exposed his corruption to the world in a way that he wouldn't have been able to weasel out of this time. The president of the Lubbock Criminal Defense Lawyers Association said of the deal, It's outrageous and suspicious that a matter of this importance to the integrity of the judicial system is being settled behind closed doors. Ware, meanwhile, was on the warpath. 
he and Ashley were actively and conspicuously recruiting people to join their conspiracy against Officer Hubbard, and if his targets refused, he threatened them with career ruin or even prison time. Some of them resigned from their jobs on the spot, unwilling to be a part of Ware's corrupt scheme. That's admirable and all, but they, like so many before them, still didn't blow the whistle. Ware and his co-conspirators were undeterred by the growing chorus of negative press and allegedly went so far as to orchestrate attacks on Hubbard's defense team, hiring unidentified henchmen to slash their tires, fire shotguns outside their houses at night, leave piles of roadkill in their yards, and even burglarize one of the attorney's homes five nights in a row. A prominent defense attorney and a Lubbock police officer stepped up to publicly support Hubbard's whistleblowing. So Ware falsified evidence against them and bribed a justice of the peace to slap them both with bullshit indictments, then had him arrested. Travis Ware has gone too far this time, one of Hubbard's attorneys said. If he can do this to you and get away with it, who's gonna be next? Thankfully, a judge intervened to issue injunctions and drop the false charges against the whistleblowers, and Ware was ousted from office when he lost re-election in a landslide. But that was it. For all the crimes he allegedly committed and all the people he fraudulently sent to jail, the only consequence Ware suffered was losing his job. And that was only because the voters held him to account when the system failed or refused to do so. It's not at all unreasonable to assume that, if he'd won that election, Ware would have faced no consequences at all. And Travis Ware wasn't just some rogue bad apple. If anything, he was simply the low-hanging fruit in a sprawling culture of corruption with deep roots and long branches. We found dozens upon dozens of reports chronicling three decades of corruption involving prosecutors, DAs, sheriffs, police departments, and medical examiners throughout West Texas including a litany of complaints, indictments, overturned and disputed convictions, bribery, fraud, witness tampering, perjury, autopsies performed while drunk, and even body harvesting for the black market. And nearly everything that I just listed was allegedly taking place as late as 2019. When Hubbard was fraudulently indicted by Ware, it was the first time he'd gotten a taste of what West Texas law enforcement looked like from the outside, and what he saw shook him to the core. Things have changed for me after I sat on the other side of the table, he said. I've lived the nightmare of being wrongfully indicted and charged, of being wrongfully dragged into the system. That's changed my attitude towards others accused of crime. Now, as I go about my law enforcement duties day in and day out, I am much more cautious in evaluating evidence before I ask that a criminal charge be brought against an individual. But during the satanic panic, cops like Hubbard who were willing to stand up for what's right and blow the whistle on corruption, or just learn from their own lived experience, seem to have been more the exception than the rule. And it wasn't just small towns in rural jurisdictions. For part three, we're packing it up here in the ninth most conservative town in the country and taking a road trip down to the 14th most progressive city in America, because big city devils are their own breed of evil. Dr. Erdman moved to Washington State to start over as a junior high school teacher, but the gig didn't last long. In 1995, he was busted for illegally possessing firearms, a violation of his probation as a convicted felon. 122 firearms, to be exact, found stashed in trunks in weird places throughout his house, including a fully automatic M16. 
When Seattle police and ATF agents raided the place, the yard was covered in quote, weird junk like bowling balls. And the inside was like a scene out of hoarders, filled with trash, taxidermied animals everywhere, and severed pig's feet hanging from the walls. And of course, there was a broken down Oldsmobile in the driveway with a bumper sticker on the back that said, it's hard to be humble when you're from Texas. Erdman spent some time in Washington State Prison, then moved back to Texas where he died in 2010 in the comfort of his Fort Worth home. But dozens of folks he sent to prison won't get the same luxury. Thanks to his negligence and corruption, they'll die in a cell. And a lot of them will die innocent. At least Dr. Erdman got some comeuppance. In the next episode, I regret to inform you, he too will be the exception, not the rule. His legacy is still affecting cases to this day not to mention tormenting families like the Rollins. And the corruption he helped spawn in West Texas is still happening, maybe even more so than before. Like we said, the lack of closure is frustrating, but it's also a pattern. In a lot of ways, Childress was a microcosm of the satanic panic as a whole. Stories like that unfolded all over America, and while they're each unique, they all share some common themes, motifs, and archetypes. There's very few heroes, a whole lot of villains, some real, some imaginary, some both, and a frightening number of victims. Taken together as one long story, the panic never had any real closure either. No righteous comeuppance for most of the bad faith actors, and most notably, no definitive ending. It eventually just kind of faded away. We can map the steady decline, but there's no distinct termination point, and we have a theory about why that might be, one that we sincerely hope is wrong. What if the satanic panic has no satisfying or even identifiable ending because it hasn't happened yet? What if we, all of us right now, are writing that ending for ourselves? To be continued. Tex Arcana is written and produced by us, Ryan Sheffield, and Brad Dewar. Recorded here in beautiful Denton, Texas. Home of our great friend and great photographer, Adam Neese. His photos are the foundation of the collage art that we make for every episode. And you should check out his work sometime at adamneese.com. This show is made possible by Elizabeth Yang, Volt Ron, Zach Wayne, Sean Treat, and our other generous supporters on Patreon. You can become a supporter of the show at patreon.com slash texarcana. The more support we can get, the more texarcana we can make. Music by Whiskey Folk Ramblers. Black heavy metal music for the Graveyard Devil Cult was provided by Denton's own, Rot of Obsidian, from their new album, Children of a Shattered Infinity. You can pick up a copy at any major online retailer and check them out at rotofobsidian.bandcamp.com. They're a great band and great guys, so give them a follow on Facebook and Instagram too. We'll be back soon with the third and final part of this series. And thanks for listening, y'all. 